Welcome to Wisdom of Crowds. I'm your co-host, Shadi Hamid. Our guest today is Molly Ball, joining us on the podcast for the first time. She's a national correspondent at Time Magazine and the New York Times bestselling author of Pelosi. It's perhaps the definitive biography of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. You should check it out. We're including a link in the show notes. In this episode, we talk about what overturning Roe v. Wade will or won't mean for the future of U.S. politics. Until a few days ago, Americans could act under the assumption that Roe was permanent, but it wasn't. The debate over abortion is also a debate about institutions and whether bodies like the Supreme Court can ever truly be neutral. Of course, we also talk about democracy. Ending Roe would mean abortion policy being decided by the states presumably according to the whims of the wisdom of crowds. But is this what we mean by democracy? And then a more practical question. Do evangelicals really think abortion is tantamount to genocide? Obviously, these are some big issues. Thankfully, we have Molly to guide us through this minefield. Molly is a reporter, which means she actually talks to real-life Americans and asks them what they believe. Molly is one of the sharpest observers of American politics around today, so we're very happy to have her. As we usually do, we've split the episode into two parts, each about 45 minutes long. Part one is available for everyone. Part two is for subscribers. You can subscribe by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. You'll get access to all our paid content, including weekly bonus episodes, Q&A features with me and Demir, as well as our full essay archive. So please do consider joining us. Without further ado, our conversation with Molly Ball. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right, shoddy. So, I mean, maybe we can just start with whether or not you were surprised by this, because I guess I'm surprised by a lot of things because I don't follow the news very closely, and I just didn't see this coming. I guess I knew, like, in theory, in my mind, that conservatives wanted this to happen and that there was enough of a majority on the Supreme Court to make it happen. But I think there's a big difference between knowing something will happen and then when it actually happens to be able to process it. And there's a gap there oftentimes. And that's why we're always shocked, even about things that we knew uh, were going to happen. And I'm just curious, like as someone who is, you know, your your Time Magazine's a national correspondent, um, you cover American politics, you cover The Hill, you wrote um, a wonderful biography of Nancy Pelosi, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes. Tell us how you're, like, tell us what's going on in your mind right now. Well, I would say, first of all, nothing has happened. Oh, Roe v. Wade has not been overturned. <laughs> all that has happened is that we know that an opinion has been drafted by Justice Alito. Um, does that fact surprise me? Not at all. Because anyone who's been following the court knows that there are these cases before it, and in fact, that 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 uh, stand a very good chance of uh, at least leading this court to uh, sharply sh- sharply limit Roe v. Wade, if not overturn it entirely. 
So certainly the possibility has been out there that Roe could be overturned. I will say, though, your point of view is very representative here of sort of most American voters, right? There's this sort of vague sense that, oh, the court's kind of conservative, but nobody really thought like, oh, this is something that's going to happen tomorrow, right? So the, the reality of it potentially happening is something that I think surprised most people. Um, it has been on my radar in the sense that like, you know, when I've been out interviewing candidates, um, particularly Republican candidates over the last few months, I have been asking them like, you know, what do you think if it's a governor or what do you think your state could, should do if Roe v. v. Wade is overturned or if it's a member of the House or Senate, what do you think, you know, Congress should do uh, when and if Roe v. Wade is overturned? Um, so the possibility has been out there politically. But, you know, I've been covering politics for nearly 20 years and 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 the politics of this has always been sort of hypothetical. And Democrats in particular have been trying to scare voters, women in particular, that this was going to happen for a really long time. And it has just they just haven't believed it for the most part. Right. I mean, I remember covering uh, the 2012 presidential election when the Obama campaign was making this big push to uh, use Mitt Romney's statements opposing uh, abortion to get women to come out and vote for Obama. And I spent a lot of time like literally talking to soccer moms at literal soccer fields in suburban Virginia. And and they all sort of said, like, that's not really going to happen. So it has been baked into the national consciousness for 50 years now that this was just part of the landscape and that and and the longer it's been in place, the less believable voters have found these sort of scare tactics around like those nasty Republicans are going to take away your reproductive rights. It's sort of been like, yeah, well, wake me when that happens. So now we're all awake. Do, 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 you, do you feel I mean, again, in your reporting leading up to this, exactly what you said there, though, is there a sense among Republicans kind of like, you know, they've been a dog that's chasing the car. Now it's caught the car. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. And they're like, oh, yeah. I mean, the politics of this in, in one way could not be less mysterious. Right. I mean, you look at the way both parties have reacted to this coming out and they have both sort of been saying the quiet part out loud, right? You have Democrats saying like, oh, we're so sorry for all these women who can't commit abortions, but this is great for us. And you have Republicans saying like, oh, certainly we all want to end abortion, but oh my God, let's not talk about it, right? They've been very explicit um, on the Republican side saying they want to talk about anything else. Um, and, the, and the Democrats have been equally explicit saying that they believe that this is galvanizing uh, for their voters. So uh, so in that sense, the politics are obvious. And, and on the other hand, I feel like the politics of this are completely unknowable. And I distrust anyone who's making sort of confident predictions or has confident takes about how this plays out because it is unprecedented. But Ro here's the problem. Roe v. Wade has not been overturned before. We've certainly seen abortion be political a lot, but we have never been in this situation. And I and so I do think that we just do not know exactly how this is going to play out. Yeah, and along those lines, I mean, when Democrats think that something will be good for their electoral chances, I'm always like a little bit suspicious because Democrats, like Democrats are really good at losing and finding new and creative ways to not do well or as well as they should. And I just, I worry that whatever calculations folks on like, quote unquote, our side are like thinking through like, oh, this will be really good for us. We're going to benefit from the backlash. Women will rally increasingly to the Democratic Party, especially soccer moms and so forth. I just like 
that it may not turn out that way precisely because, as you said, the politics are unpredictable. We can also imagine a scenario maybe where um, evangelicals get very enthusiastic and, you know, in certain parts of the country, this actually drives up Republican turnout in the midterms. But how, how do you see, like, what is the range of possibilities here? Do you, could it actually help Republicans in some way or you don't think it's going to be a benefit for them ultimately? Well, they don't think, seem to think so. I mean, I have a pretty ironclad policy of not making predictions. I will say, just to make a sort of meta point on what you said, partisans on both sides are like just completely convinced that their party is just terrible at politics. <laughs> right? I hear this from Republicans. I hear this from Democrats. Like, oh, and, and it's because they think they're right and everyone should agree with them. And so it's mysterious to them that the people in charge of their political operation can't magically convince the entire country that that's the case. I would point out that, you know, Democrats currently can control the presidency in both houses of Congress. So the idea that they're somehow only good at losing, isn't, it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. Now, you feel they should have done better because you think that, you know, that the people should vote for them or whatever. Shoddy knows best. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, Republicans feel the same way. And, 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 uh, and they're, they're the ones who are, who are shut out, at least in D.C. at the moment, even if, you know, people think that they're probably going to do pretty well this November. Um, so, but that aside, like, of course, there's a wide range of possibilities. I will say to the Yes, it could be galvanizing to the Republican base. In general, I don't think voters come out to say thank you, right? Hmm. Um, so like voters come out because they want something to happen. So when it's already happened, I do see this potentially solidifying Trump's grip on the Republican base. I do see, you know, I mean, this is something that, you know, religious voters in particular uh, have been, you know, wanting and working for for decades. Uh, and Trump's the one who finally gave it to them. And so to the degree that, you know, I mean, it, you could certainly make a good argument that his putting out the list of of potential Supreme Court nominees was the reason he won the mm. 2016 election, right? Because it convinced otherwise skeptical uh, religious voters that he would give them what they wanted. Uh, and then he did it, which is a promise kept to them. And that is incredibly consequential, you know? I mean, uh there were there there have been a lot of politicians who seemed closer to the evangelical voter philosophically and personally, someone like a George W. Bush, uh, and they didn't get Roe v. Wade overturned, right? Right. Um, but but uh, you said the voters are not grateful, so it's not necessarily that they then. I mean, there was all the other stuff that people, you know, evangelicals, Trump voters to a large extent were sort of, you know, they knew what they were voting for in Trump as, you know, his personal life, all of that, they were aware of it and they were making a bargain. And now if they've got their bargain to a certain extent, I don't know, uh, how, how do you think that plays out on the, the question of gratitude and the sort of thank you? Yeah, like, no, it that's true. Yeah. I did sort of just say two conflicting things, didn't I? <laughs> um, look, I mean, I think they will be grateful to Trump to the, I mean, they were, Trump already had the strongest hold on uh, on, on Christian voters specifically, on white evangelical voters specifically, uh, of any Republican politician really that I can recall. Uh, and so to the extent that this sort of just solidifies that hold, makes it that much more unshakable, I do think it does that. But in terms of what does it do for the Republican Party in November, what can they go to their base and say, you know, vote for us because we'll do this for you? I mean, yeah, I mean, they can they can say, you know, the Democrats are saying they want to codify Roe, right? The Democrats want to pass a law. The Democrats are doing it right now on Capitol Hill or are, are, are formulating 
a bill that they can stage a failed vote on to to show that they really want to make sure uh, that that uh, access to abortion is is still there. And um, and so I could see that being persuasive. Uh, but there we've been we've talked a lot in the last you know couple election cycles about suburban voters uh, and specifically about my demographic, which I always like when my demographic is 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 decisive and it happens a lot. You're white, a soccer mom. I am a white college educated suburban woman, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, and, uh, you know, we were the ones, not saying me, but we were the ones as a cohort that sort of decisively turned against Trump and the Republican Party and swung the election in 2018 and probably 2020 as well. And then swung in, in Virginia, where I live, uh, for uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin and, and put the Republicans back in power. Um, so uh, and, 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 you know, you go further back in history and uh, a lot I can recall hearing, for example, when uh, Janet Napolitano got elected governor of Arizona or Kathleen Sebelius got elected governor of Kansas. These were moderate women in red states who were able to, pers- in, in both cases, persuade a lot of sort of conservative leaning suburban women uh, that the Republicans were too extreme on social issues, specifically abortion. Uh, so that is a big block of voters. Both parties know it's there. Both parties know that this is a this is a, a, you know a block of voters that uh, is already somewhat primed to see Republicans as extreme when it comes to reproductive rights. Uh, so that is, I think, why you see the parties making the assumptions yeah. they are about the politics of can, it. Can I share a little fun aside about because Trump actually um, he endorsed a slate of candidates, right? And some of them did quite well in the in their respective Republican primaries. One of them is J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy. And I think that I I think that I can share this. I, I don't I don't I but it's probably fine. <laughs> I'm not editing, Shadi. I don't have time this week. <laughs> but it's funny because um I um I DM JD Vance a couple months ago because I thought like it would be really cool to have him on the podcast. He didn't respond. <laughs> Understandably, he was busy running a primary campaign. But I think what I, I was I was excited about the prospect of having him on to have a fair but still tough interview of him and to push him on certain things, how he used to be anti-Trump, but now he's become a darling of the Trumpists and he's really portrayed himself as like the... Trumpist populist candidate, but I just thought like listeners might find that amusing yeah. or or worrying, quite frankly, that we would even consider having someone like that on. But anyway, he, um, yeah, and he. Well, was, I hung out with JD a few months ago. I wrote a I wrote a piece about him, and we had we had breakfast in Cincinnati oh. the day after he launched his campaign. So it is okay to spend time with Trump supporting Republicans. I mean, I'm a reporter. That's like a huge part of my life. <laughs> that was more of a rhetorical question. <laughs> I mean, I didn't catch any diseases, if that's what you're wondering. Um, but, uh, uh, but you know, we had exactly that conversation. And and uh, and he, he, he sort of somewhat famously said, well, I'm actually, I'm not a flip-flopper on Trump. I'm a flip-flop flipper. Because he claims, you know, he was for the things that Trump is about oh. before he was against Trump as a person. And then he came around um, and he said, well... Uh, I figured if all of these people who are my people are for him, I just have to suck it up and be for him as well. Oh, well, so, so that's his explanation. Yeah, but yeah, yeah go, go on. on. No, no, go ahead. Uh, 
Well, I was going to say there's been a lot of analysis out of that primary um, about, you know, how, you know, the Trump endorsement won it and 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 what that means. I'm surprised there hasn't been more commentary on uh, the Tucker Carlson factor here because Tucker was the first to really champion J.D. And there are a lot of versions of quote unquote Trumpism, I think, sort of vying for primacy at this moment. Like it's easy to to attribute things to Trump since he says everything and nothing sort of all the time. Right. He says a lot of conflicting things. Uh, he, he, he obviously doesn't have a sort of well-articulated personal philosophy. Um, so you could say that it was Trumpism to, you know, want to do like no wars, but lots of tax cuts. You could say it was Trumpism to want to do this sort of uh, populist, you know, nationalism sort of blood and soil to coin a phrase that, uh, that Tucker seems to be into. Um, and, and it's that particular brand of, 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 of potential Trumpism uh, that, that Vance saw as his ticket. And, and, and that's the reason, you know, that I think Tucker kept having him on and endorsed him before he even launched his campaign. And that was what eventually brought Don Jr. into the fold and convinced him that they were simpatico and they became friends. And that's what eventually brought, brought Trump on board. So I think that that's the conduit and that's the philosophy uh, that really won that primary. So I, there, there's a lot there. And I mean, I, I don't want to lose track of some of the stuff we were talking earlier about this, this you know, uh, as you said, not yet final, but the row moment and, and, and a lot of this. Um, I mean, we can start unpacking exactly this around J.D. Vance and sort of the way you're framing it. Let me see how I can ask this question to, so we get the conversation started on this. What strikes me, what I was saying earlier, right, is the that maybe the Republican elites are a little freaked out in the sense that they're like the dog that's been chasing this. This has been something that's been chasing for a long time. It's just sort of almost muscle memory at this point. This is what we're after. Get it done. And the disjunct there is... While you're right, as you were saying earlier, right, that that uh, sort of the the maximalist position, maybe the activist position within the Republican Party, renders the whole thing, uh, abortion and row and 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 choice, their stance on it extreme. It's also, I think, true that the base, the core base, legitimately is motivated by. Uh, right to life, right? They they are uh, pro. Sorry, I mean pro life. They are that is a core thing. I guess what I'm getting at is is you know I when we talk about Trumpism and Tucker Carlson and Peter Thiel's involved also in getting uh, JD there. There's there's always for me the question of um, maybe there's like a, a three three points in the the spectrum. There's the activists. There's the political elites, and then there's the base, and then there's sort of the broader public. And, and I feel like, you know, Trump, I sometimes wonder whether he most correctly reflects a certain truth about the Republican base, rather that, than that it's Trumpism, that rather it's reflective of that. Then there's the activist class, which is sort of separate from the base, though I think maybe is more aligned on abortion with the Republican base than the elites are, who've just been sort of going through the motions on this. And, and I don't know, does any of that sort of, 
you know, does that make sense in a way to sort of to think about it? Because I, 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 I get frustrated and I, it's something Shadi and I talk about a lot here is, you know, the podcast sort of started when Trump came on. Like The idea of wisdom of crowds is, you know, haha, wisdom of crowds, Trump is elected. You it's know? ironic. It's the ironic sort of title of he it. He never won the popular vote, though. Yeah, still, you know, it's, <laughs> it's uh, I, that's sure. Sure. I'm not saying crowds are wise or unwise. I'm just saying that, like, Trump is not a failure of uh, popularity. No, that's fair. I mean... We can get into that, like the, the where democracy sort of, you know, institutionalized democracy and what counts for it. it. Are we then talking about that the Electoral College is undemocratic and these like counter majoritarian things? Let's have things? a long conversation about whether voters are stupid. No, that's okay. We can keep talking about that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, it's, it's not, it's not, Possibly I mean, the only thing the, the, more the, the, uh, the, dangerous to the, talk about. The irony of it abortion. is, I mean, our, our, our sort of joke though is not, is not necessarily the voters are stupid. It's, 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 it's actually even more that, you know, we, on the one hand, we lionize the wisdom of the people. And then in certain sort of ways, we get horrified by popular things. And I think that's an elite versus base thing that happens. It's something that that's a factor in democracies. And I, I just wanted to sort of, I guess, start teasing that apart on this moment, because I think it's interesting yep. that 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 nexus between uh, what what do you think from your reporting, for example, uh, is... How, how does this moment, again, anecdotally from friends who, you know, either have family or are more conservative and, and have their, 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 their parents, their families seem to be actually quite, quite happy and energized by this in a way that elites aren't. And then obviously the activist classes beside themselves with happiness, both the sort of Fed sock people and, uh, you know, sort of the pro-life movement more broadly are, are besides themselves. They've been working on this for 50 years. Right. So again, you know, how well, do, so, you, so look, yeah. uh, I would say a few things about that. First of all, there's a Republican base and there's a Trump base, right? And the reason Trump won is because he was able to take the existing Republican base and be acceptable enough for them and then add the Trump base who were, you know, new voters, hadn't voted at all before, hadn't voted for Republicans before. You're sort of very stereotypical, right? Like white working class a uh, rural voter in, 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 in Iowa or Ohio who, you know, Trump speaks for them like no politician ever. So they're starting to merge, right? And, the, and this is the task of the GOP in this moment is to try to convert the Trump base into a longer, a, a lasting Republican base. They haven't done it yet. They haven't won without Trump on the ballot. Um, and so, but, but some of that Trump base is quite secular. So that's a difference between the Trump base and the Republican base potential. I mean, a lot of them are not, right? Um, and there is a lot of overlap. And it's certainly true that the, those, those evangelical voters, again, are, are very, very, very enthusiastic about Trump more so than any other uh, sort of sociopolitical demographic. Um, but both parties have polarized on this is another point that I would make, right? And that's partly, it, that's sort of cause and consequence of Trump. But, you know... It used to be that you had the, the mainstream Republican position was very much uh, that abortion uh, should be mostly illegal, but with exceptions. Uh, and the mainstream Democratic position was sort of the, the, the famous, quote unquote, safe, legal and rare. Um, but in the intervening years, uh, as everybody's just gone bonkers and, and become um, more extreme, uh, the, the Republicans have have. It's become more and more okay for Republicans to take the hardline position of no abortions ever, no exceptions, and for Democrats to take the hardline position of 
you know, abortion on demand until the moment of birth, and it's a positive thing. We, we refuse even to say that abortion is shameful or bad. Um, and, and those are both quite unpopular positions. Um, but both parties' bases have demanded that they become more vocal about those extreme positions. Um, but then going back to the point about, you know, elites versus base versus activists, et cetera, um, the sort of, you know, the famous quadrant diagram of politics with social and economic liberalism and conservatism, right? For a long time, you had the Republicans were the party of social and economic conservatism, Democrats, social and economic liberalism. And then you had this very, this sort of vacant quadrant, right? The neoliberal quadrant of, of, uh, fiscally conservative, socially liberal, the, which is, you know, 80% of the Republican staff on Capitol Hill, right? Pro-gay marriage, but want to cut taxes. Um, very much out of step with, with, with sort of the base there. And then you have the other quadrant, which nobody was speaking for sort of until Trump came along, right? The, sort of the socially conservative, but fiscally liberal. And that is very much the sort of J.D. Vance sales pitch is saying, let's have a sort of a welfare state that supports families. Let's move away from these, this, this extreme sort of Paul Ryan, like cutting entitlements and, 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 uh, and taking government assistance away from people, uh, but let's also be super hardcore conservative on things like abortion. Let's go back to, you know, an, an, an anti-gay marriage stance that I think a lot of Republicans, Republican establishment elite types were pleased to put that issue behind them. Um, so uh, so that's the vacuum that we saw Trump fill. And it's clearly the place that people like Vance and like Tucker would like to see the Republicans occupy. It is the sweet spot in a sense. I mean, some people even accuse me of being close to that quadrant or that like over the years, they think I'm inching in that direction. I, I don't think it's true, but but it's just worth, but there is something to be said for, um, you know, I'm not as, I'm not as like liberal as where the Democratic Party is now. And I think a lot of people are starting to feel that on social and cultural issues, that the activist base of the Democratic Party has gone so far in a particular direction that a lot of Americans end up being to the right of where the Democratic Party is now. But point of clarification, just so, because I actually don't know the answer to this. You said that both parties have moved towards extremes on either side and that you have Democrats calling for abortion on demand until birth. I've always thought that that was a bit of a caricature because that seems to me to be a crazy position. And the fact that people are actually saying that you can have like partial birth abortions that close, like that close to like the birth date. I, I mean, so that that's just one thing I'm wondering about. But also, if I understand correctly, the Mississippi case, I guess the Dodd case is about 15, about um, abortion would be prohibited after 15 weeks. So it seems that at least in that context, Republicans are still allowing for the possibility that you can get an abortion in the first trimester. Or am I misunderstanding those two positions? No, I think you're right on the specifics there. Um, but I do think that we've seen, uh, I, I don't think you see a lot of, say, Democratic politicians articulating uh, you know, the extreme left position, but you definitely see it in the activism. You definitely see the way that activists treat this issue um, has, they, they've be, like, I think, you know, if you have the, the, the partial birth abortion bill that was a bar bipartisan bill when it passed however long ago, 
I, I wonder how much democratic support you would get for that these days or whether you would have a lot more of uh, the the sort of reproductive rights organizations, your Planned Parenthoods and NARALs and so on. I mean, think about Planned Parenthood. Why does it have that name? Because it was a messaging idea to send the message to people that this is about being able to plan your parenthood. This is about having the ability to decide the size of your family. And I think that's very different than a lot of the, the, the like, say it loud, say it proud, I had an abortion type activism that you have going on in the Democratic Party right now. Hmm. Do, do, do you think, I, you know, I mean, to Shadi's point about, uh, again, you know, getting to that, that, that elites, activists, base or voters, um, do you think that voters are feeling lost in this, in your reporting? Do you get that sense that they're feeling left out from as the parties polarize? Or, you know, the counter is, is that we're all becoming polarized as voters. I mean, it's hard for us in D.C. because we live it and I think we're, we're, we're terrible barometers of any of this stuff. But, you know, it's your job to not 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 be in our bubble. Go out there to much. real America yeah. and talk to the great unwashed. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but but also just in general, you know, I my parents don't live in this country. I'm, I'm you know, uh, first generation. So I you know, Shadi's actually uh, born here, but also first generation. But, you know, a, a lot of my American friends who have family living in the great unwashed, you know, in the in real America, if you will, it's, it's, it's different. And I feel extra sort of uh, out of that in a way. But the, I wonder the extent to which that's, that's another one of these things that we, we educated folks like to say that, you know, oh, Again, getting back to the wisdom of crowds, like the, the horse sense of the people is still sensible at its core, that it's not being, that, that politics is not reflective of something that's happening to all of us. Do you have a sense of that? Again, you know, the polls on, 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 on Roe are, are, are sort of confusing in that sense because it's, what is it, 60-40 generally they want it preserved, and yet restrictions also, want, they want some level of restrictions, and then that gets played by politicians and activist class in different ways for different purposes. Is there a sense you think that people are increasingly homeless or they're 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 getting sort of yanked and and you know pulled in the direction of the way that these things are playing out? Yes. Which Next one? question. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, so yes, so I will say number 1 on your question of like is polarization happening because it's what the people want or or is it hap or is it something that everybody's distressed about? Everybody's distressed about it. Mm. You look at when pollsters ask this question and they include it on the list of like problems facing our country, like, you know, however you want to phrase it, political division is usually how it's termed. It's number it's like the one thing both parties agree on. It's like 80 percent of people are very upset about the political divides in our country and how mad we all are at each other and how little we seem to want to get along with each other. Now, when you actually get them in a room, are they actually going to shake hands and make friends or are they going to yell at each other? Who knows? Yeah. Like, clearly, the polarization is coming from inside the house. But you can argue that, you know, it's the product of sort of activism and the fringe and sort of minorities who are able to leverage asymmetric power in smart ways. Uh, but people really are distressed. And, you know, talking about this vacuum in the electorate that Trump exploited, there's a huge vacuum in the electorate right now. And that's the status quo. There is not a party saying we're just the party of like keeping things the way they are. And for a long time, I think that was sort of the appeal of the Republican Party. But you now have both parties pr promising revolutionary change, uh, if not actually overthrowing the government. Uh, so I think that is a big part of what makes people feel homeless, because, you know, as much as like 
some very large percentage of people feel like the country's on the wrong track, most people are pretty attached to the status quo, right? Most people don't want to get rid of Social Security. Most people don't want to get rid of Roe v. Wade. Most people want things to say, stay approximately the way they are. But you have both parties saying, no, we need a revolution. And to your point, Shadi, you know, to the point to the uh, you have the, the, the Democratic Party seemingly controlled by these very extreme views about things like identity, right? Racial and gender identity and uh, promoting a sort of uh, a, a sort of rigid uh, essentialism that, that, that doesn't speak to a lot of people. Uh, and I think that that is part of this phenomenon where people who would just like things to be the way they are with the way we teach, you know, how, how people should deal with their classmates of different orientations and that kind of thing. Those people don't have a voice. That's fascinating. I haven't heard it described this way that, that, um, most American voters are basically status quo oriented, but the two parties are anti-status quo. I mean, that's a profound disjuncture, obviously. But, you know, one thing that, um, so as, as listeners will know, like one thing that we like to do on Wisdom of Crowds is to, is to talk first principles. So we have these divides in our country and we are getting more polarized. I would argue that it's not about disagreements about facts or policy. I mean, that's part of it. That's like a superficial reading. But at the core, there are these deeper divides over foundational questions, first premises, assumptions, and so forth. Um, and I think part of it has to do with, you know, how we view democracy, but also we can even go like deeper religious ideas around abortion and the human person when someone actually, um, when some when a, a fetus becomes viable and so forth. But we don't have to get into that necessarily. But on on the democracy question, I wanna, I wanna, just, and I wouldn't say this publicly because I, I, I don't. No one's listening. <laughs> We're off the record. But in, but <laughs> in context, I feel like I can express myself openly here. That I think there is something. So I, I personally am pro-choice. Um, we, you know, as, Muslims don't generally have as big of a problem with abortion. It's not like a focal point of debate in Muslim communities for the most part. The classical position in, in Islamic law is that abortion is permissible in the first trimester. After the first trimester, it gets a little bit dicey. But it's not something that people up until now have gotten like really worked up about from like a Muslim perspective, right? Um, but what well, if I can just interrupt, yeah. you know where Jewish law is on this question. No, can you? No. A fetus officially becomes a person when it gets a medical degree. <laughs> okay. okay, I did not see that coming. That was good. I have not heard that joke before. <laughs> it goes um, to medical school might be the, might be the actual joke. But yeah. Go on. So, so I'm, you know, I, so my general position is, um, if you're going to have an abortion, probably better to do it in the first trimester. Afterwards, it's probably better to not have too many abortions afterwards. But, you know, I don't feel very strongly one way or the other. I, I guess I'm more in the Clinton position of, what is it, safe, legal, and and rare, um, which I guess is not the mainstream position of the Democratic Party any longer. But I think that I can see an argument, and actually our friend Jason Willick, uh, the Washington Post columnist, has a piece which will probably be out shortly that makes this argument that 
there's something democratic about putting this back to the states to say that we have been relying on the Supreme Court unelected judges for the past 50 years or almost 50 years making deciding these fundamental questions but perhaps there's something to be said for putting this back to voters and saying well Americans disagree we can they can disagree on the local and state level and if you have states where people feel, feel very strongly that abortion should be restricted then they can make their case to the fellow citizens and elect representatives who reflect that if we in blue states or cities feel differently then let's mobilize accordingly and that's a federalist that's a that's a federal solution to it that we say let's actually make this a point of real democratic debate instead of putting it to the supreme court which are just a bunch of elites who went to the same the same law schools and all of that so it's weird to me that democrats are really making this argument that there's something anti-democratic about a potential Supreme Court ruling against Roe v. Wade, when in a sense, that could be seen as a move in a more democratic direction where we let the voters decide. Well, I mean, you are conflating small D democratic with large D democratic, right? The Democratic Party is not oh, yeah, sorry, a party sorry. of democracy. Well, yes, yes. So I'm talking about small D democracy, the democratic right. idea that but we let voters- But you're also talking about the Democratic Party and why don't they take this position. So just to point that out, just so- um, I mean, I will say the counter argument to what you're saying, and I am not taking this position, but but just offering the argument is that in our democracy, there are certain fundamental human rights that the Constitution protects. Uh, and the point of the judiciary is to safeguard them, particularly for minorities. So you don't get majorities oppressing minorities, which they can do in a democracy because there are more of them by definition. So, uh, and this is not a case of minority rights so much, but it is a case of, you know, if you believe that uh, a woman has personhood uh, and ought to control her, you know, physical self, for a lot of people to be able to tell, to, to tell a woman that, you know, the state has the power to tell you uh, what to do with your own body, uh, that's a sort of fundamental violation. And that's sort of the basis on which the, the court sort of came to that in some people's view, invented, you know, quote unquote, right to privacy was the idea that there is a sort of inviolable, uh, I'm obviously not a lawyer, but that there, there's a certain sort of inviolable physical integrity that we all have that the state is not allowed to, to mess with. The state shouldn't come into your home and inject you with drugs. So, or though you get into, you know, vaccine mandates when you start talking about that, but the state, you know, shouldn't be telling you basically what to do with, with your body. So I, I, I think it's more complicated than just saying like, you know, voters ought to get to decide this when you're dealing about something, when you're dealing with something that is so fundamental to sort of the, the, the human personhood uh, of women. Yeah, and I should clarify, just, just to be clear, like I'm not fully endorsing what I just said, but I've been intrigued by that. And when I've seen this argument being made by, you know, um, conservatives who are in crazy, not to suggest that most conservatives are crazy, but just the ones who I respect, like Jason Willick, and we'll include a link to his piece in the show notes. It's it's It seems like they, they're they on to something that, I don't know. So it's just something I it's wanted to put out It's a legitimate argument. I'm, and and um, 
and and it's and it's what we're likely to see play out, right? And it's what would have happened if if Roe hadn't been decided the way it it, it was was that would was that you would see this piecemeal piecemeal legislating in certain states. But but if I can just go back to you know the way we started this conversation about this being unprecedented and not knowing how it's going to play out, I I just want to underscore that because abortion was really different when Roe v. Wade was decided, right? This whole thing about like back alley abortions and coat hangers and so on and so forth. We are living in a world where you can get abortion drugs over the internet, where, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, Planned Parenthood uh, or some other organization convert itself largely into a fund that pays for people to travel out of state and get the abortions that they that they believe that they need. Uh, and, and, and that is something that's largely enabled by technology that wasn't available at the time of Roe v. Wade. So I think we're, it's a very different landscape for communication and human connectedness and technology and medical technology. And all that is going to affect the way this plays out. So it's not going to be the, so it's not going to be quite the same landscape. Um, although yes, it, it, in a lot of ways it will be just like it would have been in 1973 in terms of like the blue states will immediately make abortion legal and the red states will immediately make it illegal. And we'll see how far they go. It'll be interesting to see, you know, you have a lot of red states that either already have or are about to completely ban abortion. And completely meaning that. Well, I mean, in some cases they have the, I don't know if any of them have already passed, but they have these personhood bills, right. That, that literally say that, uh, that a zygote is, is is a human being that you can't murder. So, uh, if they go that far, like, is that enough to turn say Idaho blue? I doubt it, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, in very, very deep red States, how empowered do they feel to, to go to the the real extremes on this issue. And that's, I think, where the, the anxiety comes from elites. And this is the activist elite thing where I'm not sure exactly where the base is, right? Is that 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 uh, the activists are really frothy. And, and, and to, to uh, I think, even push on that, like what we don't know what will happen, um, if the activists now are as emboldened as they are, uh, you know, it's... I think it would be a mistake to think that this is the end of it, right? Because now the the terrain shifts to, as you said, like personhood at point of conception, uh, and that's the new normal. And really, I mean, you know, uh, to your point, Shadi, about, you know, sort of querying beliefs on this, if you believe that's true, that's pretty heavy stuff. And, and, and then what happens, yeah, right? Yeah. Are we putting women in jail right. who've tried to have medical abortions that's or right. who've tried to get drugs over the internet? Uh, and how does that play with the public? Yep. Are women dying uh, because of uh, these types of things? Uh, or is it, does it turn out that actually everything's kind of fine uh, and everybody's kind of okay with it? And as also often kind of happens, uh, the Democrats who were yelling so loudly about what a disaster this was going to be that would end civilization as we know it look kind of like the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, to the, to the, 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 the the question of rights as you framed it you know i i just remember gosh i don't i don't know if i can even dig it up but it really was probably a, a decade ago i remember reading a a really good article in the economist of all places that uh did one of these you know economists and this was back then when the economist was a little bit even more conservative i think but they did a a, a special on 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 abortion and they really did this sort of comparative european versus versus american approach and at the time, I remember the Economist really went at that point that by uh, 
and this is something I think happens a lot in American politics, in American democratic politics. We make things about rights, whereas the European approach ends up uh, in many ways, I think, being more restrictive uh, than the American uh, in some countries, depends by country, obviously. Um, but it's it also becomes taken out of the democratic process. And the rights question is taken out because it's sort of shunted off into this is a difficult gray area and somehow it gets shunted off to technocracy, I think, to, to a large extent in some countries. You know, you get panels that decide this and I mean, we have that here, even within the rights debate, like what is viability? That's the core of Roe, right? Figuring out what that point is. And that's- Maybe we can finally get our death panels. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I've always been for death panels myself. I don't know. Uh, but but the, the, the uh, I don't know, throwing that out on the, the whole sort of rights thing, because I, I- I mean, I don't know if I have the like international comparative politics- uh, knowledge to to talk about like us versus other countries but but it, i do think that for a lot of people it is a, like one of the most resonant arguments that you hear democrats going back to a lot is that this is between a woman and her doctor yeah, right yeah and the idea that like no matter whether you think abortion is tragic or wonderful or what it just fundamentally isn't the state's place to be involved sure, in it right sure. and i think that that is a message that it may go back to this idea about bodily autonomy. It may not, but it, that is a message that I think resonates with anyone who's had to make a, a difficult medical decision, which is most of us. No, sure, sure. I, I again, though, it, it's 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 striking. Right, even on that, though, it's striking that you could you could reframe that uh, for a different issue that is say less personal and would re really resonate as a much more libertarian position as well. Right. It has that resonance of it. And in a sense, when you, when you put that in, in, again, the classic terms of, you know, woman, doctor, state, stay out, you put that in almost any other context and it, it does, it sounds very foreign in, in a, in, I would say in a, in a, in a Democrat's mouth, right. Potentially, you know, just state keep out. Maybe. I mean, it's 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 a common demo, largely democratic retort to any sort of social conservative arguments. Right. It's right. Like whether like we had sodomy laws on the books until quite recently. Oh, that's true. That's and true. that was also the argument against those was like, do what you want in the bedroom uh, or, or, or gay marriage or or a lot of other things. Um, but it, but certainly to your point about like the comparative politics of it, I, I would certainly not be the first person to argue that Americans are are are, are a much more uh, individualistic, mm. right? Um, and perhaps and perhaps small L libertarian people uh, certainly than most of Europe, and 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 less comfortable with a lot of what uh, what we would see as state coercion. Mm. So, you know, and I think that so one when we talk about how Democrats kind of message around this, so. On the point about relying on the democratic process versus relying on the Supreme Court, I wonder if Roe v. Wade, and I know you know others have made this argument, um, that Roe v. Wade, first of all, it nationalized this debate and made it much more resonant. And I know there's arguments that the the rise of the modern religious right um, owes some of its good fortune to Roe v. Wade, that this this basically allowed this incipient movement to gain traction on the national level. And I wonder if also Democrats have become used to not persuading their fellow citizens because they've come to rely on courts 
to basically, as we've been talking about, protect these fundamental rights. And in the process, our ability to persuade has atrophied. And we've become so reliant on unelected judges to kind of see our vision. And maybe we're losing touch with the American people and ordinary American voters because essentially we're thinking, oh, we as progressives, we found what is right. History has ended and it's up to us then to impart this knowledge onto the uncouth, uncouth or uncouth? Couth, but unwashed. We're unwashed, unwashed, yes. <laughs> the uncouth masses. I mean, how do you... Is that is that part of what's going on here that we're losing, you know? Well, I did think of one example of when you were pressing me earlier on, like, can you really say the Democratic Party has become more extreme? I mean, look at what Joe Biden had to do on the Hyde Amendment to win the Democratic primary. Mm. Right. And just maybe this is a politician who's a who's who's a very religious Catholic and who's always taken that sort of angels on the head of a pin position of, well, I personally don't like abortions. Uh, but I just don't think the government should be involved, whatever. Uh, but he had tried to position himself as a sort of pro-life Democrat, and he had been for the Hyde Amendment, which is the uh, recurring attachment to uh, spending bills in Congress that sa that says none of no taxpayer money can be used for abortion. And that is a position that's quite broadly popular with the American public. Um, and it was always sort of tacitly understood by the activists, even the reproductive rights activists, that this was just something that, you know, Democratic politicians were going to do to, like, not look extreme. And they would just sort of live with it. And then you get to the 2020 Democratic primary and Joe Biden is the only one of the what was it, 11 million, I believe is the actual number uh, candidates on that stage no. <laughs> who was not who was not against the Hyde Amendment, and they came under extreme pressure from uh, liberal activists, and he had to, uh, they, the campaign decided that in order to win, he had to give up that position, and he officially came out against the Hyde Amendment. So I think that's a pretty big marker of how activists have pushed the Democrats to a more extreme position, to essentially a position that says abortion is health care and the government should fund it because the government pays for other kinds of health care. Hmm. Um, so to go back to your question of, you know, are Democrats out of touch or, or condescending or whatever? I mean, for a long time, the status quo sort of served Democrats, right? And they were in the annoying position of feeling like they were right on this issue, but not getting any credit for it. And Republicans could take these crazier and crazier and more extreme stances and do things in red states that, 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 that nobody really agreed with, uh, but they would never pay a price for it or seldom pay a price for it. Uh, because everybody just sort of felt like, well, but we've got Roe v. Wade, so we don't, so, you know, nothing's going to change. And that was true. So, uh, you know, if, as long as we're talking about the wisdom of crowds, voters are smart enough to see that voters hmm. are smart enough to see that like politicians can yell all they want about like, they're going to take away your abortions. But like last I checked, we still had Roe v. Wade. So that's why I think this whole landscape becomes different once that's, once that's no longer the case. So that was part one of our conversation. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. There's still much more to come, though. Another 45 minutes of conversation with Molly Ball. Part two is for subscribers only. You can subscribe by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. A link is also included in the show notes. So please do consider joining if you'd like access to all our paid content and to help Wisdom of Crowds grow.
And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for listening.